Okay. Let's start tonight by setting our motivation for this time uh, together. Today I read a story in an alumni magazine that found to be quite inspiring of a woman from Seattle, I guess, Janet Ketchum. And she is building schools for girls in Afghanistan. And she's very aware that, so she's very educated about what she's doing. And she knows that it's a war zone and that you can't be naive. But when all is said and done, she's building these schools with different organizations and now her own, and then handing them over to the local authorities, the educational departments. And then when, when someone asked her about that, like, since the Taliban has closed a lot of these schools and this and that, she just says, you have to have faith. And it's not like she's not aware of what's going on. But I think that she's very much educated in the situation. And one thing she says is she knows that one extra year of primary school will change a girl's life in that country and in, in developing countries. And so if they just make it through one year, they're going to have a, it's going to affect the whole rest of their life because they will learn how to really get that and this and that. And so I was thinking as we go into this um, topic of the six perfections, how my mind tends to go all or none a lot and then get discouraged and how useless that is and how uh, actually if I just look at these as trainings and I use them that way they're they're so beneficial to the mind so tonight we're just going to talk about the first five but let's do this with this mind that can be open to the possibilities of what our potential is and see that we can help ourselves and others by any amount of our understanding and practice of the six perfections. And by doing this, we will continue along the path to awakening and be able to benefit every being in the most, as Venable Jigme says, in a most excellent way. <laughs> so, we've gone through the generating of bodhicitta in the last few weeks, and once that's something that is arising spontaneously and continuously in the mind stream of a bodhisattva. <laughs> um, it's going to dominate their life, and every aspect of their thought and behavior is going to be governed by this. And that's, to me, quite inspiring to think about becoming awakened to be able to benefit beings, and without any error or favoritism. So we have an equanimous mind, and we have 
you know, developed our skills so that we know what needs to be practiced and what needs to be abandoned. But once you've developed the aspiration of bodhicitta, then you have to put it into action. And this is where we get into the topic for tonight. So the six paramitas or the six perfections, these practices that we do are the method. And so we have to really know that the method is one that's complete and correct. So this is a method that's described as being unmistaked and complete. And all the practice of the Dharma is contained in the six uh, far-reaching practices, six perfections, the six paramitas. So when a bodhisattva does these deeds, they do this to free themselves and they do it to teach others how to be free. And as a part of that, they may take the bodhisattva vows as well, which when you read them have a huge amount of... Uh, they relate completely to the six perfections. They're just set up that way. And the reason they need to train themselves in this way is because in order to help others, the way we help others primarily is by teaching them and by our example. And so Dhammakirti says that if you don't, um, in order to destroy suffering, compassionate ones apply themselves to the methods. If you don't know the cause for creating a result, it's difficult to explain it to others. So by practicing these six uh, far-reaching practices, we will be applying the methods, we'll be freeing ourselves, and we'll know how to help others. So this, these are unmistaken in the sense of that they tell us um, precisely what to do. And this is because, you know, some things will lead, everything leads to different results. You want to get the results of a Buddha, you have to create the right causes. So they have this funny expression, no matter how long we pull a cow's horns, we won't get any milk. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of that simple. And then it has to be complete so that you have all the causes and conditions, just like in growing plants, you know, from a seed, you have to have all the causes and conditions there. So the Buddha summarized these as in kind of the whole path into great compassion, bodhicitta, and then this perfect method. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight is this method, which is the method of, uh, which includes um, the collections of merit and the collections of wisdom. And the way we're going to go about this tonight is mostly focused on all six at once and how they interrelate with each other. First talking about it in terms of what is the collection of merit and what's the collection of wisdom. So the collection of merit is the method side of the path. So here we really cultivate a mind that's aspiring to um, learn these perfections. So that's important, I think, to think of it as an aspiring mind. It's like if we already had all these capabilities, we wouldn't need to do them, you know, do these practices. So, And then that the, the method and the wisdom relate to each other because method enhances wisdom. And so by purifying the mind, we enrich it with merit, and then it makes the mind more receptive to developing wisdom and the wisdom of emptiness primarily is what we're thinking about here. It enables wisdom to be uh, 
increased and to deepen. And so then this wisdom becomes a more powerful antidote. So that's just talking about the collection of merit, how it relates to the collection of wisdom. The collection of wisdom is the wisdom side of the path, and that we'll be talking about mostly next week. So the main thing to understand is that these two, method and wisdom, it can be also described as the six far-reaching practices, but they're kind of two names for the same thing. They have, we need to practice them together, and the motivation that underlies all of this is compassion. So we could do these things with other motives, but that they wouldn't then be far-reaching practices. We'll get into that a little bit. So what we want to do is we want to put our bodhicitta into, into action. And we do this by trying to lead our life like a bodhisattva does. And we do this to ripen our own minds by training in the six far-reaching practices, and then we do it to ripen others' minds. And that's more related to the four ways of gathering disciples, which are generosity, teaching them the Dharma, encouraging them to practice, and embodying the Dharma in our life. And they consider that those four ways of gathering disciples are kind of uh, a part of the six far-reaching practices. So basically, the far-reaching practices encompass everything. And those are generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, concentration, and wisdom. So what makes them far-reaching? This is um, where the far-reaching just in itself has this connotation of going beyond. It's getting out of cyclic existence. It's getting all the way to uh, Buddhahood. So we've gotten rid of all of our afflictions and obscurations, and we've developed all our good qualities limitlessly. And so these are called far-reaching because they're more than just like a mundane level of these practices. Like, you can be generous without it being far-reaching generosity. You know, because when we're doing it as a far-reaching practice, we're reflecting on the, we're bringing the emptiness side into it, and the bodhicitta aspect into it, both of those. We're reflecting on the ultimate nature, the giver, the gift, the recipient, and the action of giving. We know that they're not inherently existent, but are dependent. And that actually, even in the midst of giving and doing things, is helpful to our mind, because sometimes things would come up in the mind of a bodhisattva, and then they can just reflect on emptiness, and, you know, like, maybe they're just having a moment of, like, I don't want to give this. (laughs) And they can use their wisdom to kind of dispel these things coming up in the mind. So they really are interplaying together with each other. And then it's based on bodhicitta. Um, And so one thing that I found helpful, because that's been a little confusing to me, is which part of far-reaching makes it far-reaching. And it's both. But then sometimes it's also the word is used um, it's kind of, mm, how do you say this? If somebody doesn't have the wisdom, they still sometimes will use the word far-reaching because it's similar. It's just they don't yet have their wisdom developed all the way. Because sometimes when you read these things, it's kind of clear that they maybe both aren't there completely. But that was one thing I found out that uh, kind of solved that for me. So you're still seeing the agent, the object, and the action is truly existent 
which most of us are doing. But we're still trying to work on these far-reaching attitudes, and maybe sometime we'll have bodhicitta, but won't have developed our wisdom as to that point yet. So they can still be called that. So I think the important thing to think about is that these are a state of mind, not our external behaviors. And that's really, I think, in practice, a crucial point for at least someone like me who right away wants to go to action, like, what am I going to do here? And I think uh, it really slows you down to work first with the mind, get the mind into this state, work with it in that way. So in order to do this, we have to know what each of these practices entails so that we can practice them kind of carefully and uh, correctly. So this is almost like definitions now. What is each practice? So generosity is a physical, verbal, or mental action based on a kind thought and the willingness to give. And ethical conduct is restraining from non-virtue. And in particular, we talk about the ten non-virtues, but other negativities as well. Fortitude is the ability to remain calm and undisturbed in the face of harm from others, physical or mental suffering, and difficulties, which would be quite an amazing capacity to have. Sometimes we do that, and it's quite, you know, it's really helpful to be able to handle things with a calm and undisturbed mind. Joyous effort is taking delight in virtue. So definitely virtue, not just any old thing. Meditative stabilization is the ability to remain focused on a constructive object without distraction. So it's not just any object, it has to be a constructive object. And wisdom has two parts. It's the ability to distinguish conventional and ultimate truths, or the meaning of reality, you might say. And it's also the ability to discern what to practice and what to abandon on the path, which really relates to karma. So it's said that, um, that we need to engage in all of these from the very beginning, but it's easier to start with the first ones and, go, and do them in order. So you're kind of doing both at once. You focus as you start on generosity, because that's the easiest, but you want to practice all six at once. And so why is this that they come in this order? Um, so I was teaching this once at the prison, and I thought this was quite well received, actually. Because, <laughs> you know, you're in prison because your ethical conduct is there for one reason or another. So, you know, just think of yourself, the things that we do, so generosity has to precede ethical conduct because if you're attached to all these objects and you're going to go out and steal them or whatever, or you have greed for more and better all the time, these are obstacles to abandoning non-virtue because you're going to just be so overpowered by you know, your desire for things. So being able to give helps to help precedes this ethical conduct. And then you need ethical conduct in order to have fortitude because by practicing ethical conduct, we learn to control our afflictions and we start being able to be more calm in the face of harm. We're stopping harming. And then fortitude is needed to have joyous effort. Because with fortitude, we remain calm when the situations are difficult. And this internal calm is what allows us to maintain joyous effort and practice. I find that to be really the case. 
I think this, the two are so intertwined with each other in my experience um, that it's hard actually for me to separate them sometimes. So, you know, think, I think it's something, all these things are things to be found in our own experience and try to um, see how we can improve ourselves. And then you need joyous effort in order to develop uh, meditative stabilization because this type of concentration doesn't come easily. Mm-hmm. It requires continuous effort over time. So you need to have joyous effort to sustain it. And then you need the meditative stabilization in order to develop this uh, wisdom that's clear and sharp, that can penetrate the meaning of topics, especially of ultimate reality. So these are why they are practiced in this order, because actually they're easiest. Generosity is easier. And then thinking about the functions of them, um, this I find quite inspiring to think about, um, like, why? Why do we do this? We do this to accomplish the welfare of other sentient beings. We do it to fulfill our own aims and the aims of others. And we do this so that we continue to have precious human lives. These are three functions of things that happen with, with engaging in these activities. And so how would that be? How are we co- accomplishing the welfare of others? So there's just pragmatic things, you know, like with generosity, we're helping with poverty, we're helping people to have the necessities of life when you're giving generously in this way, um, or even just things people enjoy. And when we're living ethically, we're not harming others. And then other people really benefit from that because they don't have as much fear and pain in their lives. And then when we're uh, more patient with others, if they're inconsiderate or having being harmful in their behavior, if we can have fortitude and patience with that, we avoid causing them pain because we can hurt another person physically if we don't remain calm. and Or we can escalate a situation and then they retaliate. So physical harm can happen and also mental pain. Actually, I think on both sides, but now we're speaking about for the other because... Just think about the times where you're, where you have, uh, you know, we're able to remain calm in a difficult situation. How it doesn't escalate, and then the other person can calm down too, and it doesn't have to get into a thing where there's a lot of guilt or remorse or even humiliation, things like that. So we're really benefiting others by working on ourselves in this way, and this is really useful to, for me, to look at the advantages of this, you know. It helps me to make effort to know, to see and think about these things. With joyous effort, we can continue to help others. And we can do it without laziness and discouragement coming up in the mind. We can do it without resentment coming up in the mind. We just have a sense of joy. They say, moving from joy to joy. You know, that would be quite an amazing thing. So that's what bodhisattvas do. They don't get compassion fatigue. So we do, maybe now, but, you know, this is where we're headed. And it's just a matter of keeping, creating the causes. That's why we have to have faith, or we won't make the effort. And then with meditative stabilization, we gain many kinds of abilities by having um, 
these deep states of concentration, including including things like, say, clairvoyance, where you can actually help others more because you kind of know what's going on there. You know, you know what's going on in another person's mind. And with wisdom, we're able to teach others, and that allows others to practice the path, to learn about the path, and then they, it helps others to eliminate their doubts and progress. And that we all see, I think, in having a teacher who can help us with their wisdom, you know, just because we're always running against, you know, always going upstream against our um, ways of thinking, our behavior, our repetitive and habitual behaviors and this and that, we're always swimming upstream. So we're always going to run in, you know, well, often we can, it's easy to run into problems. And without having the wisdom that of the teachings and the teachers, I mean, I don't even know what I would do, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we'll be able to help others in this way. And then the, um, the so the first uh, three of the six perfections are mostly um, said for others, and the last three, joyous effort, meditative stabilization, and wisdom, are primarily cultivated to fulfill our own aims, to spur us on the path. So we need to have joyous effort, or else we won't overcome the resistances that come up in our mind and the types of laziness that come up in the mind, which you know we're all very familiar with. And you can just see in your mind when you can bring joy to mind how it just can dispel this so, so wonderful. And Shantideva has a beautiful verse in the patient's chapter about do not let anything disturb my mental joy. That's where we want to head, just to be able to keep this level of joy. It's really a wonderful antidote, and I can do any of it. <laughs> it's like really helpful. And so we see that in our teachers. I mean, these are our models. We can see how they're able to handle amazing situations. And you need this to develop meditative stabilization. And then with that, with a deep meditative stabilization, our mind will be more subdued, and then we can stay on a virtuous object as long as we want. And what, this will help us to develop um, the special insight type of wisdom. And then wisdom eliminates our ignorance, our afflictions, fluted karma. This is how we actually free ourselves. And then there's a, another section about fulfilling the aims of others. So not just benefiting them, uh, their welfare, but fulfilling their aims. And so these actually all center around ethical conduct. And so this is the benefit of, it's quite a benefit not to be harming others. <laughs> That's the first one. You know. And so... Uh, I think we've talked about this a little bit already. But I think, you know, um, if you think about it in terms of generosity, when we're not so attached to things, then we don't create so much problems, so much harm, getting what we want of any kind of thing. It doesn't have to be a material object. It can be praise or anything. And if our anger is strong, we do so many things, we motivate so many things that cause pain and misery. And so we're harming others when we do that. And so by cultivating this, we won't be harming others. And not only that in the moment, but we're actually making it so more negative karma isn't being created. So this is really important for the long-term goals. And also, I think this is one thing that 
I've certainly seen is that when we see people who have a lot of fortitude, it's very inspiring because most people have some level of difficulty with anger. It's always uh, miserable, you know, disturbing. And so to see someone who actually can transform this and work with this is very inspiring and it's like a model. And then we also have the benefit of being able to help others. And so um, we've talked about that a little bit, but also one of the things about being generous is this actually attracts people to us. But still, you have to remember that this is the most important thing here is the ethical conduct. So as Shanti David talks about, um, you know, even if your others are attracted to you by your generosity, if you're not, if your ethical conduct isn't together, it's not going to work out. They won't want to be with you. You won't have the opportunity to lead them on the path to awakening because they're not going to be want to be around you. You know, I mean, that's so clear. He writes about that, and it's just that verse always. You know, I don't know why that really speaks to me. He talks about the the owner, somebody who has people who's hired, that even if that person is very generous, those people will actually even kill him, you know, do harm to that person who's generous to them if that person's ethical conduct is poor. And we see that in the world. That's actually very true. So that's to me a wake-up call when I read that verse. Because we're just causing damage and then we can't give how can we benefit others in that situation it's just not going to work so the ethical conduct is really how we allow trust we become trustworthy when people will know we're trustworthy when our ethical conduct is cultivated too that's quite important and to have generosity and ethical conduct you're not going to be able to have those without having fortitude and this is where I think the examples they give are just so, I don't know, in my life I see these playing themselves out. When people aren't grateful when you give them something, mm-hmm. you know, I react. Well, there will become a time where that won't bother me. It will be like, oh, oh, you know, like you were actually really able to give and not expecting anything in return and having this kind of fortitude where, you know, you can bear these things without having it upset the calm in your mind. And then the third point is that one of these important aspects of, um, of ethical conduct in particular in fulfilling the aims of others, not harming them, helping others. And we did all those. Okay, and then to go back a little bit here. Yeah, the functions. So the last function of the far-reaching practices is a precious human life. And we need this because we aren't going to get uh, necessarily enlightened in one lifetime. We need a string of lifetimes. It's a gradual path for most of us. I mean, and even people who probably got enlightened in one lifetime, I think they did a lot in their previous lives. It's pretty clear from the teachings. <laughs> they didn't base it on nothing. <laughs> so, and I, even the sudden enlightenment traditions have this in their teachings too. So. So we need a string of precious human lives. And the main way to get a, a upper rebirth is through ethical conduct. So what are these different parts of the six far-reaching practices? How do they help us in the future, in our future lives? With generosity, 
we're creating the causes to have resources in future lives. And if we don't have resources, if we're poor, it's very difficult to practice. So the generosity is the cause for having resources in the future. And ethical conducts gives us the chance to use these resources in a human life. I mean, you could be generous but not have ethical conduct and you're going to end up maybe as a cat in an abbey because <laughs> you'll be in a lower realm with great you know, material and other resources. So we have to have an upper rebirth and ethical conduct is the principal cause of that. And then with fortitude, this creates the causes to having a personality that's pleasing and companions who will support us along the path. And so if we're, you know, losing our temperature, our temperature, <laughs> losing our temper, <laughs> I think I might be losing my temperature too, but, you know, it helps to be, ple- be able to be a pleasant person that people want to be around if you're going to lead and guide them. And even have the uh, people around you so that you can practice. I mean, we're um, yeah, we're not all Buddhists yet, so well, there it is. And then joyous effort. Now, now in our lives, we want to really try to follow through on projects and things that we uh, start. Not finishing things is a hindrance to benefiting others. Um, and I saw this. I was thinking about this. Um, one time a, a nun came here, who was a translator, and she was reading our book about, um, and taking notes on this book, Nonviolent Communication. And she had to finish it before she left. She said, I have to finish this before I go, because once she starts something, she has to finish it. And this was one of her practices. And this is exactly the reason why, is because in the future she wants to have... Um, the situation where she has um, the causes, have created the causes to have situations in her future life where virtuous projects can come to fruition, can have success in our constructive activities and the practices, even our practices. So this is joyous effort in this life is creating the cause to have these abilities in future lives. And then meditative stabilization in, the, in our future lives, we don't want to have our afflictions overpowering us because this causes great harm and, and a lot of uh, unwholesome karma. So it's important in this life to try to do the best we can to c- cultivate a stable and peaceful mind, one that's not so distracted here and there with our thoughts uncontrolled, our emotions uncontrolled. It's just so miserable anyway. I'm kind of in the midst of that lately, and it's not fun. Um, but by continuing, you know, don't give up, keep working on it, find ways to break through these things, and this is creating the causes for the future. I won't have the afflictions I have in this life if I can continue to work on this. I don't have the problems I had five years ago, you know. It's just, we have to look in longer spans of time. I'd say five years might be the minimum. <laughs> you can figure that out for yourself. <laughs> Some people are quick learners. (laughs) Okay. And then wisdom, we, by cultivating our wisdom now in future lives, we want to be able to discriminate between misleading teachers. We need to have the correct path. If we don't have the correct path, we're not going to get the results we want. We have to know what to practice and what to abandon. So by, in this life, 
cultivating the wisdom that understands karma, the law, you know, the um, law of karma and its effects. This is creating the cause for our future lives, to have uh, reliable teachers that will teach us the correct path and will know what to practice and to abandon. And I think we've seen that just in the history of our teacher. Every teacher she has is impeccable. And she didn't, she stated this many times, she didn't know A from B in Buddhism when she met teachers, but she just met fantastic, reliable teachers. So this is, in her view, from previous life's work, and this is what the teachings tell us. So it's important what we do now to have this long-term view. And also it's important to realize that we need all six in order to um, gain the results. You can't just have five of the six, four of the six. You need all six. Because without even one, our our um, potential, how do you say it, in future lives we won't have all the circumstances that we need. Because we're creating the causes by each of these, and they're separate causes. You know, you're not getting the uh, resources you need materially by, you know, meditative stabilization. You're getting those by generosity. And you need all of these different kinds of uh, results in future lives. This is what we, why we, this is what we've done in the past to have what we have right now. We've done this in the past, and that's why we have the situation we have now. So we're, we limit ourselves unless we practice all six. And if you think about it, I mean, this is, I think we've had some stories here from people we know, people's experiences in this room of like um, people who had maybe cultivated some of these but not all. Because they say like joyous effort also makes a person have a lot of charisma. But think about having charisma without ethical conduct. Mm-hmm. Or thinking about having like the first four, generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude and joyous effort, but not having meditative stabilization, so then your afflictions are out of control. You know, I mean, you could create a lot of harm. You know, we have to be able to control our minds a little bit, pacify our minds so we don't do a lot of harm. And then they say that without wisdom, we won't necessarily have good rebirths one after another. You know, you might have the first five, but if you don't have wisdom, you'll have ignorance. And that ignorance, you won't. You can go to a lower realm, and then it's kind of hard. So that's kind of talking about all of them together. The only point I didn't make about that because it's hard to go all through all this in one hour. I have tons of notes on things, uh, so I thought to do it that way and just say something little about each one individually. So. We'll just talk a little bit about generosity, this uh, mind that wants to give. And so this is important to think about having wisdom, too, because it's not just giving people whatever they want. We have to give things that are beneficial to others. So I read something that I thought was really uh, helpful to think about. Um, it's in a. It's described as an early Mahayana Sutra, and it says... The Buddha is speaking, saying, 
the bodhisattva should reflect as follows. What I give away is mine. What I keep at home is not mine. What I give away has essence. What I keep at home has no essence. What I give away will bring pleasure at a future bring pleasure at a future time. What I keep at home will only bring pleasure right now. What I give away does not need to be protected. What I keep at home must be protected. <laughs> My desire for what I give away will be exhausted. My desire for what I keep at home increases. <laughs> I find truth in all of these. What I give away, I do not think of as mine. What I keep at home, I think of as mine. <laughs> what I give away is no longer an object of grasping. What I keep at home is an object of grasping. What I give away is not a source of fear. What I keep at home causes fear. What I give away supports the path to awakening. What I keep at home supports the party of Mara. <laughs> okay. That kind of gives us the advantages there. <laughs> so, that being said, and knowing that bodhisattvas have supreme joy in giving because they don't have any self-centeredness, so they always are moving from a joy to a joy. The other thing I read, it was there was another part in this sutra that I thought... You know, sometimes I get discouraged by some of these things. <laughs> I like the things that bring it down more to my level, which is sometimes things are a bit of a stretch for us. <laughs> and so we have to acknowledge our limitations and not feel any, uh, not denigrate ourselves or feel ashamed. And this is, I think, true for all of these things. They talked about this in this one of giving, but I, I think this is true for all of this and how we waste so much energy this way. Instead of going into, you know, not being able to separate guilt from regret and all this and that, we want to put our, our energy into eliminating hindrances. So just being able to acknowledge our limitation, it's like acknowledging our mistakes. It's very similar to that in my mind. And, and so, you know, recognizing when, when something is beyond our capacity and not hating ourselves for it, you know. And so here's what the Buddha said. It's the same sutra. He says, the Buddha tells us to humbly explain to the person. At this point, okay, now I'm talking to all of you. You take this as from me to you. At this point, my strength is meager and my roots of virtue are immature. I'm only a beginner in the universal vehicle. I am subject to thoughts of not giving. I still have the perspective of grasping and am stuck in taking things as me and mine. And so, good person, I beg you to forgive me and not be upset. In the future, I will act, accomplish, and exert myself in order to fulfill your desires and those of all beings. <laughs> I like that. Will you send that around? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's kind of like, it's positive. You know, it's kind of like you're not beating yourself up. You're stating what it is, and you're doing it in a way where you're acknowledging the other person. And you're aspiring, you know. I mean, the Buddha is so helpful. I mean, I had to spend time on generosity because it is the first. So we won't get through everything tonight, and we'll probably go over a little, but whatever. So now let's come back to motivation for giving, and re and just we're just touching briefly on points, but you know, just to realize that you can appear to be generous, and actually have a motivation that is to control or manipulate another person, or you can have a wish to really deep generosity 
but have very few resources. And we see that in the sutras, you know, just amazing stories of somebody having almost nothing, but just with such sincerity. And then they talk about four types of generosity, which I'm just going to list. Giving material possessions or money, giving protection from danger and fear, giving love and giving the Dharma. And then uh, in this, I think it's important for us to remember that we only do this when we're asked, like especially with sharing the Dharma. You know, Buddhists don't proselytize, people ask. And then um, the kind of the instruction is to try to just simply give advice, like one friend to another. We don't, in our uh, learning to give this type of generosity of the Dharma, we don't want to have any expectations of something in return, offerings, respect, and any kind of special treatment. That's kind of hard to do. You know, we're just kind of more habituated to business transactions. <laughs> I give, I get. But that's, a, that's what Dashman Rinpoche taught me, you know. He'd say about things, this is business. And he'd help me really discern, like, what's a tr- business transaction and what is generosity? He said that so many times about different things. This is business. So you could discern, well, that's not generosity, you know. And then another thing in terms of generosity, which isn't on that list, but something to think about that Minimal Children has talked to us about is learning how to be a, a recipient of others' generosity, not letting pride or other things get in the way. And then we need to remember that although it seems counterintuitive to our mundane way of thinking, we think if we give we're not going to have anything, we're going to lack things, and karmically that's not what it's about. But even yet, we even yet we have to be practical. We can't give away everything. We have to be able to take care of ourselves. So Dhammakusha will always say, "Give what you can give." It's very simple. Give what you can give. That always helped me a lot. And then we also want to think about giving things that are even that are actual, but also imagined. So we have that a lot in our practices, and really makes the mind very joyful and helps us. So we don't have to have things to give. We can just imagine things and give them too. And that's all part of generosity. Okay, I think I talked quite a bit about the points with ethical discipline. I just want to talk about one point uh, from this. I think it's one, yeah. That I think is, I find helpful, is that how do we get into trouble? Four ways... Ethical errors occur. Not knowing, lack of respect, carelessness, and strong afflictions. So sometimes we don't know what precepts we've even taken, you know, or we don't understand them. But, you know, so we need to study our precepts, our pledges, our commitments, understand the ten non-virtues. Sometimes we don't have enough respect for the precepts, and we just don't think things are important, you know. Um... Yeah, there's that kind of confusion. That's I think, one of the first things I learned when learning the Dharma is that all this confusion lifted from my mind about ethical conduct. And there's a lot of confusion earlier in my life. So we don't understand really the disadvantages of doing things that are unethical or the benefits of doing things that are ethical. We just have been clueless. You know, it's like 
If I don't get caught, it doesn't matter. No, no that's not the case. And then just thinking about that, when we abandon these kind of destructive actions and this harm, how our mind is so much more calm. We don't have these remorse and guilt, you know, coming up in the mind. It's such a benefit. And then carelessness. This is kind of where we just, you know, we we kind of disregard. We may know these non-virtues, the ten non-virtues, but we don't, we kind of ignore them. We don't monitor our behavior. We just, we don't care if what we do is virtuous. We don't care about the effects of our actions on others. We follow impulsive thoughts that enter our mind. And so really here is where it's very important to be mindful, and especially of our precepts. That's why we have these. They protect us. So we, we be mindful of our pre- precepts, and then we use our introspective awareness to what what am I doing with my body what am I doing with my speech what am I doing with my mind and slowing down enough to be able to do that so you can actually get to a place where all the time you're doing that and I think that's what we see in our teachers I've noticed that with Dasha Rinpoche when I was taking care of him we would be walking in his living room through his kitchen He he had a walker then and he was this lack of carelessness he would stop and rearrange these couple of dishes that weren't stacked right. <laughs> it was like, so careful about all these little things. And that's what I see in our teachers. They're very careful about small little things. They don't let these little things go. And then strong afflictions, you know. And so here, you know, when our mind is just overpowered by our afflictions, we can't even bring mindfulness and introspective awareness to the forefront because we're overwhelmed by our afflictions. The afflictions are now in control. And so we have to learn and apply the antidotes. So when we have attachment, we want to think about impermanence. We've talked about a lot of the antidotes in the past, just touching on things. But one I wanted to mention, because I find it particularly helpful, which we've talked about before, is if peop- if you have thoughts that are running towards depression, you want to think about your Buddha potential and precious human life and lift your mind up. And if you're having problems with restlessness or the mind keeps ruminating about things or doubt, then you need to calm the mind, and that's why they recommend breathing meditation. And those aren't always covered so much. You get stuck on, on attachment and anger. And so... So when we are able to have this kind of uh, more awareness and counteract these afflictions, our whole demeanor will be more peaceful. And so the way we do this is we shut the doors to these transgressions with mindfulness, with introspective awareness of our precepts or behaviors, with self-respect, which is integrity, we're trying to live by our values, and consideration for others. These four things... If you can practice those, you can really clean up your act, so to speak. And this is important because ethical conduct is the basis of all of our good qualities. It's the primary cause of a fortunate rebirth. So one thing I like, and uh, I, sometimes when our, we're even having the motivation to do ethical conduct, we have in our verses about not developing pride, because we're so good, whatever, that kind of mind. And so really that's kind of, you know, some ways we it's so easy to be seeking reputation, good reputation or praise. 
And so this verse, I think, is helpful for my mind. It says in this one sutra, The wise persuade others to do good. Fools are always for evil. It's better to be scolded by the wise than praised by fools. (laughs) That's what I read to myself when I'm getting scolded. (laughs) And if I had wisdom, I would think about the emptiness of the age of the action. But I don't usually get that far. Okay. So now moving on to fortitude, we want to be undisturbed in the face of harm. We've talked about that a bit. I think um, we, we work on that a lot here at the Abbey. Okay, the main thing I wanted to share is um, when we, Geshe Sopa was here, he was teaching on the sixth chapter of Shantideva. And in there, Shantideva says, this is helpful to my mind, uh, these two verses I like a lot, although he's got so many. The mind does not find peace, nor does it enjoy pleasure and joy, nor does it find sleep or fortitude when the thorn of hatred dwells in the heart. That's absolutely the case. You can have all these pleasant things and situations around you and you're miserable. And then he also says, while the enemy of your own anger is unsubdued, though you conquer external foes, they will only increase. Therefore, Therefore, with the militia of love and compassion, subdue your own mind. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. That's not Shantideva. That's from our 37 practices of bodhisattvas. So I like that part, the militia of love and compassion. To me, it says that your love and compassion has to be strong. You know, you can't be wimpy. It has to, a militia of love and compassion. We have to really uh, work to cultivate that. So I think it's important to remind ourselves that we have to distinguish between the person and the action that they're doing. And always remember that every sentient being has the potential to become a Buddha. Always they're wishing to be happy and wanting to overcome their suffering. And then when you think about this, you know, some of the meditations we do on this are so helpful. Like when you really think about it, I don't think, you know, a person's help outweighs their harm almost all the time. We might focus our mind on the harm. And then if you think about it, the mistakes that people make, their destructive actions, they don't really negate their good qualities. I haven't thought about that before this studying for this. So the troublemaker in a person is their afflictions, not the person. We don't we conflate those all the time when we get angry at people. So if we think about it, once they're, since they haven't really negated their good qualities, once they are, once a person can start subduing their afflictions, they might become our friend. You know. So I think making that discernment is quite important. And looking inside, asking yourself, why am I angry? Seeing the disadvantages of it. It doesn't mean that we don't have to protect ourselves. We can't just allow people to you know, do dreadful things. But this is, the, I think, the hard part, is not to retaliate, not to have anger, to have compassion without any malice. That's really to be cultivated. So what we have to do to do that is we have to transform our own mind. 
So that's the first kind of, of Mukeshe Sopo is teaching. It's the fortitude that is undisturbed by the harm from others. And then there's a kind of fortitude where we voluntarily accept suffering. So when I say these to myself, I always say, disregard the harm, accept the suffering in my mind, and then turn to the Dharma, which is the last, the fortitude of practicing the Dharma. But the second one, voluntarily accepting suffering. Here, um, we have to really think about how it is when we are trying to let go of things. There is some kind of mental uneasiness when we let go of things that we want. And we have to be willing to go through hardships in order to relinquish our habits that aren't helping us and our negative emotions. We have to, you know, this is where... When, when anger is overtaking my mind, my mind is quite weak. But when I get on top of it, this is how we make our minds strong, to be able to face hardship. And they talk about, and this rings true to me, that this is how we relinquish meaningless activities. That is big for me, because I think that if I can't stay on top of uh, keep some uh, fortitude and joyous effort going, my mind sometimes thinks things are quite meaningless. Well, it is probably doing pretty meaningless things, you know. If you're kind of just stuck in your afflictions, in my mind, a lot of that is pretty meaningless. My thoughts are like going nowhere, and it's really, I find that depressing. And so we, this, when we voluntarily accept suffering, when we, you know, then what we're doing is we're combating that because we have, and we won't have despair because we have a larger purpose. This is why Venerable's always saying you have to think vast and long term. And so, you know, when the mind narrows down with the afflictions, you're not really thinking very vast. And where's your higher purpose and aim? It's like gone. So I find these kind of things um, helpful to think about. So we need to transform our mind. And then the fortitude of practicing the Dharma. Well, it's not so easy (laughs) to understand. The Dharma is vast and it's profound and deep. And we have to, in order to gain the understandings and the realizations, we have to learn to be happy to continue to practice. There's the fortitude of practicing the Dharma. Our self-grasping ignorance is going to put up a fight to this, and this is what's happening. We talk about it a lot in terms of the self-centered thought, just having all of its sneaky ways. What, what uh, I read says that even when we meditate on emptiness, our self-grasping ignorance puts up a fight when its sovereignty is challenged. I think that really kind of describes it. It's a, why we have these internal civil wars. We are having an internal civil war in a way, because we're trying to get the wisdom to overtake the afflictions. So to cultivate a mind that can endure this discomfort. Because what we're doing is we have to uproot many of our assumptions, our preconceptions, our prejudices, our expectations. You know, these things that are really deep in us and we're just going to keep kind of trying to pull them out. So that's, you know, that's going to take some courage and some practice. And along the way, we will gain certainty and confidence as we continue to integrate the Dharma into our lives. So 
That's important to have that kind of fortitude. And then with joyous effort, um, one little thing in Shantideva that I find helpful. So what is it first? It's taking joy, uh, taking delight in creating virtue. Because find, um, yeah, enthusiasm for virtue. So he says, finding joy in what is wholesome. I like that word, finding, because I think that means that I have to do some work. <laughs> I don't necess- it doesn't just dawn upon me. <laughs> you know, finding joy in what is wholesome. Usually we just say, you know, you know, taking delight in virtue and things like that. And that's great, but I find that I have to work at it a little bit more. So finding joy in what is wholesome. And the kind of what's the opposite of that is kind of like a kind of spiritual sloth, clinging to things that are negative, apathy, self-contempt. He writes about all of these things. But we have to realize that joyous effort is in the mix for everything that we're going to accomplish, all the auspicious attainments. It says, all attainments follow after effort, the cause of the two collections of merit and wisdom. So with all of these things that were all these six perfections that we're developing, everything we're developing in the path, joyous effort is a part of it. And as uh, Sankapa says, you have to have wisdom in there. Effort without wisdom leads to, he said something like fatigue or exhaustion. (laughs) So we have to practice all of them at once. And then we can look back and see how um, we've grown and things that we couldn't do before, now we can do. But we didn't have any idea because our capacity, as we develop each little quality, each little thing, our capacity will develop. And that only happens if we can remain steadfast and continue to practice. Then, if we can keep creating the causes, realizations will automatically appear. It's not like we have to do anything else. We have to gain some kind of conviction in this to keep going. So then His Holiness talks about discouragement. And I found this to be quite revealing, really, to his own experience. He says, discouragement destroys our joyous effort, and it may arise for several reasons. For example, we're developing a certain skill or trying to help others, but our work doesn't turn out as we wished or planned. This happens to me too, he says. And then he says, if I look at my effect on others, doubt and discouragement arise. But when I look at my motivation, my confidence returns. So even His Holiness has this experience, you know, which is really, you know, I think uh, I find this to be very true when I can go back and just look at my motivation. So then he goes on and he says, I began with a sincere desire to benefit. Regardless of what others may say, my motivation was genuine, and knowing that gives me courage and inner strength. If my motivation is pure, even though I may not outwardly be successful, I still feel satisfied. If I try my best and act with integrity and kindness, even if I fail, it doesn't matter. On the other hand, if my motivation is not sincere and truthful, then even if others praise me I become and I become famous, inside discomfort and self-doubt will still be present. I think he really points to um, how, you know, we have to judge these things by our motivation. So, um, 
I, part of the site is new information to me and part is old and I kind of combine some things. And I remember that clearly because I was in the prison when I was telling people, because I think it's really important for all of us, but especially inmates, to know that our Buddha nature can never be taken away from us. And this is one thing that we want to, when our mind is discouraged, we want to think about our Buddha nature. This can never be taken away. Our precious human life, all the situations we have, those we might not always have. Um, But if we do have them, it helps to work with despondency. But even if we, you know, maybe don't have the situation to have all of those, we always have our Buddha nature. No one can take that away. And then the last part is about meditative stabilization, which is um, serenity or calm abiding. And so this is a mind that has stability on the object and a kind of alertness and mental clarity. Sometimes we say vividness. So I think there are just some basic things that it's important to know in order to develop serenity. We'll just go through these rather quickly. You have to have the right internal and external conditions. And uh, there's six that are usually uh, written about. In order to gain full serenity, you have to have the correct kind of environment, the calm place. You have to have things, food and things easy to be, get, to be gotten without wrong livelihood. And it's good to be in a place where great meditators have been. It has to be safe. It's good to be near other meditators and teachers and Dharma friends. So you have to have the right place. You have to have a clear and correct understanding of the methods, especially to overcome the different difficulties that arise and the different errors that we can make. So in that regard, you want to have studied before you start the instructions, and there's great works about this. And you have to be free from really coarse desires and have few desires or else your mind will always be distracted. And be satisfied and content. So really cultivating contentment. Not involved in a lot of worldly activities and commotion. And living in pure ethical conduct. So keeping all your commitments, your precepts, abandoning the ten destructive actions, those kind of things. So you have to have those. And then, you know, making sure that you've studied and understood the instructions. We need to know about the five faults and the eight antidotes. We need to know about the nine stages of calm abiding and the six powers. 